We are in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And if you don't mind, I would like to jump right in to the passage. So open up, so open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse 1 and read on through verse 12 today. The Apostle John writes this in his letter, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever does, pra- does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now... Uh, I come to you, Lord, just entirely needy of your, your truth and your grace in my life. I pray that, Lord, for all of us here. I pray, God, that you would use your word to transform us. I pray that we would, would be a little more like Jesus when we leave here as we dive into your word and, and uh, really bask in the truth of it. I pray, God, that, that you, would, you would make hearts that are, are willing to, to surrender to you in the big and the small this morning. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. John actually uh, has a springboard here into this passage, and so um, I want to, before we really dive in and dig into these, these 12 verses, I want to back up a little bit to chapter 2, verse 29. John writes this, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And that is where we find ourselves today in this whole concept and really this command to walk righteously as sons and daughters of the living God. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we've been told to walk righteously. And that is what we're going to look at today in these 12 verses. Sort of by way of reminder, uh, John is battling false teaching in the church at his time. It was this teaching of Gnosticism that, that you can believe one thing with your mind, that the, the intellect is, is holy, so to speak, but that what you do with your, your body, because it is unholy, it's, it doesn't really matter so much. Uh, unfortunately, we too have somewhat of a similar false teaching that has gained ground in our culture today. You are, you're not strangers to this teaching. We've been talking about it even from the pulpit. 
Um, this is concept of there being no absolute truth. And what this teaching implies is that I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I decide what is right and wrong. Forgetting, of course, how incredibly arrogant that is. And you're also deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. And we're sort of figuring out this life together. And as long as we do some relatively good things and we don't hurt others too bad, we do some good for society, everything will be fine. We are each making our, moral, our own moral standard. And we've achieved righteousness in our own eyes. To what end? I'm not sure. And what this implies is a vague, at best, vague, system of right and wrong and a culture filled with people who are grasping at a concept of good and right and never fully knowing if they've really arrived or not and are now caught in a deadly cycle of self-atonement. And if that doesn't grieve your heart as it grieves my heart that our culture is that way today, I believe that that teaching or semblance of that teaching has infected the church today. There's this idea among churchgoers that we can believe in Jesus as our Savior, but that whole transformational aspect of Jesus, well, that's, that's sort of optional. And generally speaking, what happens with people who believe that, who hold to that, is one of two things. Either they fall into that same cycle of self-atonement where they feel really bad about their sins for a while and, and for a season and then try, they, 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 they sort of, you know, it's almost treated like a, a New Year's resolution. I've kind of been bad and so we kind of hit that low cycle and so I'm going to get up into that, that higher cycle again and, and do good for a while. They hear a sermon title like Walk Righteously and what they hear is do better, do good. Maybe you even find yourself there right now. Many of us have. Where you're caught in that cycle of this sort of self-atonement. And you hear, do good, you got to be better, or else. Another word for that is legalism. So that's one way. Another way, uh, or another group of people, is that they, they hear the, the sermon title, Walk Righteously, and they think, ah, oh, whatever, that's nice. Because they've taken something powerful and profound and life-changing called the grace of God and they've degraded it to a, a metaphorical grace card they keep in their pocket and they pull out to get out of jail free anytime they want to. The knowledge of Christ has been separated by many people in the church. The knowledge of Christ has been separated from the transformational relationship with Christ and it's deadly wrong. You cannot have one without the other. Of course, I'm speaking in extremes with these two different kinds of people, but I don't think it's in hyperbole. We all find ourselves, as followers of Jesus Christ, wrestling with this concept of righteousness. I have been, these last weeks that I've been studying this passage, I've just been blown away at this concept of righteousness. Where do you find yourself today? Well, John does something very, very uh, important and very helpful because he draws us all in. He gives us all one focal point. Where are you with this whole righteousness thing, this command to walk righteously? John brings us in and he gives us a focal point. Verse 1, see, everybody, let's look and see the love of the Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 
It's as if John explodes with joy, explodes with excitement. That word see is, is take heed, look, behold, listen to this. Look at the love of God. What kind of love? That, that word there almost literally means John is just is, is musing and marveling. What country is this love from? This love that God loves us with. What, what country, what, what world, what universe is this love from? The kind of love with which God loves us, His children, is not from this world. It's unlike anything we've known. It's invaded this world through Jesus Christ. That God the Creator would become creature in the form of Jesus is a fundamental Christian doctrine. And yet when we pause to think about it just for a second, it's inconceivable that, that Creator would become creation for us, but also and more importantly, for His glory. It's a sacrificial love, but it is not born out of anything that you have done. It's not born out of anything that I have done. His love is rooted in His desire to glorify Himself and is therefore not conditioned on you. Man, we need to take a deep sigh after that. Thank God that it's not conditioned on me. It is grace that is completely irresistible. And God lavishes us with that grace. That's that word, it's lavish. The picture that I get is of a head coach at the end of a, of a sporting event who gets lavished with five gallons of Gatorade. That's what, I, that's what I see there in this. That's what's happening is God is lavishing us. He's pouring it out on us. It's, it's, we can't escape it. It is all-consuming. We're being lavished by the love of God by this unworldly love. One of the trendy books right now on, on Christian bookshelves uh, is Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God. It is trendy because it's a really good book. If you haven't read it, you ought to pick it up sometime. And at first you might look at that title and go, well, that's, that's odd. You know, isn't the, isn't the parable the, the prodigal son? Well, in it he aptly points out that the prodigal does not mean one who goes away and then returns, as I used to think it meant. Actually, the dictionary definition of prodigal is one who spends freely, one who spends extravagantly, one who spends lavishly, even recklessly. And so what he says is that this parable, and I think he's right, it's not so much about the prodigal son, it's about the father who spends even recklessly by our terms, that he would love so unconditionally. It's the Father who pours out his love on each one of us. And the understanding here that we are God's children because of, his extra, because of his extravagant love towards us is the lens. This is the lens right here, this verse 1. The love of the Father that he's pouring out on you is the lens that we need to look at the rest of this passage through. This whole concept of walking righteously. We have to start here. Before we can live righteously, we've got to start here. Because when we start with the love of God, we, we can begin to see and know that righteousness is not just a set of moral hoops through which we jump. Rather, righteousness is what drives us deeper into the love of God and a relationship with Him. I hope you see that as we study this passage. The world does not know us. Because of this love, because of this unworldly love that he's pouring out on each one of you if you've surrendered your life to Christ is different from the world. In fact, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world crucified Jesus. 
This, this love sets us in stark contrast from the world around us. It has to. If I'm no different from anybody else around me who doesn't love Jesus, that ought to cause me to pause and ask some serious questions about my convictions and about my attitude and my actions. Him here in this passage surely refers to Jesus. It's the absolutely true love of God for his children that unifies us and sets us, his followers, apart from the world around us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. And John is going to show us that our righteousness is directly tied to Jesus. We cannot think in righteousness of walking righteously in terms of of doing good or doing our own thing. It actually has directly to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Specifically, that Jesus came to this earth some 2,000 years ago, He died for us and he rose again and that he is coming again. That's how John sort of breaks it down here. The first thing I want want you to see in verses 2 through 3 here is that we are called to walk righteously in light of Christ's second coming. John points out here, he says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're trapped in these mortal bodies. We're trapped still in these sinful bodies. We can all agree on that. None of us is perfect. We We still live in a fallen and sinful world, but what John says and what the Bible promises us is that one day our bodies will be glorified, that that when Jesus returns, we're going to see him as he is and we're going to be transformed immediately into into his likeness as he is. Uh, Now, we're not going to entirely be like like Jesus because Jesus is God, but we're going to have these glorified bodies and we will become in many ways like him because we are all being conformed to the image of Christ here on this earth through this process of sanctification of being made pure through the blood of Jesus Christ. And John vulnerably admits here, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I'm not sure what will look like entirely, what that's going to be like. None of us does. But we will see him as he is and we'll we'll become like him. My closest experience to something like this is uh, when, I, when I go away on mission trips. Every summer, I go away on these mission trips with our high school students. I've been doing it for years, and I have three, I have three children, and um, I'll be away for 10 to 14 days, and my favorite part of that trip is when we get back to Sky Harbor Airport, and I'm walking through the terminal, and I'm about to hit that, that security checkpoint, and I know my wife and my kids are waiting on the other side. And I, I love to just kind of peek down as I'm walking and look because my kids are, are just like that, you know? We got to be like that in many ways in our life. Not that we go up onto a mountaintop or anything and just look at the sky, but in our actions, in the, in the way we treat one another and the way we approach the Word of God, we're, we're anticipating, we're waiting, and when they see me, they run to me and they embrace me and my joy becomes their joy. My peace, my love becomes, becomes their peace and their love and in, in, a, in a small way, they become like me in that moment. Now that's an imperfect example because we're still sinners. But that's a a picture, I think, of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is a longing in our souls in each one of us who have put our faith in Christ for heaven. We long for heaven. Our heart yearns for it, some days more than others. 
It's akin to that sort of reminiscent feeling of, of fond memories. Or it's akin to that, that, the feeling of, of homesickness that we have here on earth when we've been away a little while. Many of you experience it when you just think and you know in your heart, man, this, this, is, this can't be as good as it gets. There's got to be more somehow. And we long, we groan in our hearts. You can be assured that if that groaning is in your heart for Jesus to return, maybe your prayer is, Jesus, come quickly. You may know that you're a son or daughter of God and that his seed is in you because he loves you. Our hearts ache to behold Jesus as he is because only then will we fully become who we are supposed to be, who God has created us to be. And it is on this promise that we place our hope. Everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. Part of that hope, that's a, hope is our motivator for that righteous living, for that walking righteously. When my wife... Uh, goes out of the house, whether it's for a weekend or I send her out of the uh, house for an afternoon because the kids are just driving her crazy. One of the things that I, I like to do, I don't do it every time, all right, so don't get me wrong here, but one of the times I, I like to do it quite often is when she's gone, I like to tidy up the house uh, because I'm, I'm in, in some ways, I'm hoping for her return, obviously. <laughs> let's, let's hope she comes back. Uh, but I love to do that for her. I love to sort of tidy up the house. And the one thing that I know that, that is really, really important to her is the bed. It's making the bed. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm a pretty understanding guy, but I don't get the bed thing. I just don't understand it because we're, we're going to mess it up in, in about 16 hours anyway. And that's what the bedroom door is for. You just close the door and it looks great. Right, men? Thank you. <clears throat> What's more, she's very particular about the way it's done. So I've, as recently as last week, I've tried to come over, you know, and try to help her make the bed. She's like, go away, just I'll do it myself. I'm like, okay, did you take some sort of class I don't know about? Because that, that, she's really, really good at it. So I'll, I'll, my, my meager attempt is to make the bed while she's gone. Um, and it's not to earn brownie points. It's not because she's going to get home and scold me for not cleaning up or for not making the bed. It's because I know what it does for our relationship. I take joy in that. I take joy in sort of conforming to her standard of cleanliness and household chores. I do my best. And when she returns, she, she's so, she feels so honored by that. And it, it helps our relationship. It gives us both joy. That's, that's sort of a, a small snapshot I think of what John is talking about here. When we purify ourselves, it's not because we're earning brownie points. It's not because we're afraid that we're going to be scolded. It's because we are longing. We're aching for Christ's return. And in the meantime here, we want to do what we can to, to get everything we can out of our relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And so we're purifying ourselves because we get joy out of it, because we delight in it, because we, it drives us deeper into our, our knowledge and, and the love of God. It is hope in Christ's coming that compels me to live according to God's righteousness. It needs to be hope. It cannot be fear. It's hope. We are also called to walk righteously in light of Christ's first coming. So we're here on this earth, we're trapped in time, and we're looking forward to Christ's second coming. That motivates us to righteous living. But what else motivates us is looking back on Christ's first coming, verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
What I want you to see here is that righteousness requires a right view of sin. You cannot know where to step next if you don't have an accurate view and definition of sin in your life. Here's the definition of, uh, of sin. First of all, it's universal. Everyone who sins practices lawlessness. Not just several people or a few. Everyone. What this means is that what's sin for me is sin for you. There is no gray areas. It, it is black and white and it's found in the Word of God. And the conviction is found through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There is no separate standard per individual. I cannot reason or behave sin away any more than you can. And Romans 3 abruptly reminds us, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What a desperate state we find ourselves in separated from God. If only we would put our faith in Jesus Christ, hurl ourselves into the love that he's lavishing upon us, then we would be made righteous and no longer find ourselves desperate and separated from God. But no one is exempt. It's important to note that John uses these all-inclusive terms in this passage, like everyone, no one, whoever, no less than eight times here. There's, there's a line in the sand that's being drawn. This includes everybody. There is no room for relativity. There are absolutes. And then the definition of sin that follows here applies to everyone. Sin is lawlessness. This is perhaps the, the clearest definition of sin that we have in the Bible. These words are, are almost interchangeable here. They are interchangeable in this passage. It is the active and deliberate rebellion against God's moral law. This word actually speaks of more than just a series of compound rebellious actions. It is actually the state and nature of a person who is not in communion with God, who is separated from God. The truth of sin in this world is that it separates us from God, and the truth of sin is that it binds us from even being able to look for Him. It is only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we even have any notion of Him. We have this notion of to be drawn to him through his love. One who creates his own moral standard is incongruent with God's righteousness. Lawlessness is anarchy where everyone does as he pleases and that is exactly what you get if there is no absolute truth. That is lawlessness. On the other hand, what we can do with this is, is reason a definition of righteousness since it is the opposite of lawlessness. How do you know? How do you know if your uh, actions are righteous or not? We find it in the Word of God. This isn't just a, a set of rules. It's not a set of do's and don'ts. It's, it's our way. It's the way that God has communicated to us that we can interact with Him. It's a way that we can, we can know Him because, I mean, we all, we're all a reflection of God. God's created us in His image. We all have social standards by which we function with one another. This is not a foreign concept to us. If sin is a rebellion against God's law, then righteousness is the abiding in congruence with God's moral law, his standard. And it's a standard by which we can know and relate to him. The ability to walk righteously requires a right view of sin. We, try and t we, we tend to excuse sin or um, label it personality defects or reason it away or, or something like that. You know, and we've even just given in to things, well, I'm just kind of having a bad day. No, you're a sinner. And you live in a sinful world. 
And, and we, we cannot blame other, other things or other circumstances or people for the sin that is in us. We need to deal with that. We tend to, uh, tend to excuse it. The nature of sin is that it tries to convince us it is something that is not. We have to see that sin causes a separation between us and God. The best thing to do with that sin, once we realize that, is what John addresses earlier in, in chapter 1 of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous. Another word there, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might find yourself there today. You might need to just in your heart fall to your knees and confess your sin to God based on the promise that he washes you clean. And this cleansing can only take place because of Christ's coming and his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. Righteous living requires a right view of Christ's first coming. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Did Jesus give an example, uh, us an example of how to live a life of love toward others when he walked this earth? Yes, he did. Was Jesus an enlightened and uh, intellectual teacher? Yes, Yes, he was. Did Jesus give us a, a standard of, of righteousness, a standard of right living that we ought to abide by? Yes, he did. But none of those are the primary reason for which Jesus came to this earth. Jesus came to this earth, as it says in verse 5, to take away sins. That is why he came. That is the primary reason, his death, his resurrection, why he came, because it, it takes away sin. It provides a way for us to know God. God in the flesh came to earth. He was tempted just as we are, and yet he was without sin. And in the ultimate act of sacrifice and redemption, he, he laid himself on the cross. He took on God's wrath that we were supposed to get, and he paid our debt, thereby granting us the offer of forgiveness. We all, we have this offer of forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in him, you've surrendered your life to him, you've been bought with a price. You are no longer yours. The Holy Spirit is in you, and you have what it takes to walk righteously because of God in you. This is where grace comes in. Grace isn't a card that we can play whenever we want to or when we feel like sinning. Grace is what compels us to live in God's will for our lives. We are motivated to righteousness out of the conviction that we are in Christ if we have surrendered to him based on the knowledge of his incarnation, death, and resurrection. That's where John goes in verse 7 where he explains that our righteous actions are born out of already being righteous in God's eyes because of, of Jesus' atoning work on the cross for us. But take a look at verse 6. This is a little difficult. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's drastic. Uh, doesn't it seem a little contradictory? I mean, earlier, earlier in this letter, John said, um, if you say you're without sin, then you're a liar. Now he's saying that he who abides in Christ cannot sin, cannot keep on sinning. Well, I want to explain. It's kind of a, a two-part thing here. There's some things going on. First of all, remember that, that John is refuting this Gnostic teaching, this heresy, that you can somehow achieve enlightenment. You can achieve enlightenment, intellectual enlightenment, aside from, from what you do uh, with your actions and your body, and therefore achieve sinlessness. That's where John says, no, 
You, you cannot say you are without sin. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Those same, what those same people then say, though, is that, that with your body, you can, you can do whatever you want. And, and it's, it's just, it's not called sin. Because sin is, eh, who's defining what sin is? Well, God is. The other thing I want you to see is that grammatically, what, what, this, what he's saying here in, in chapter 3 is, is one who keeps on sinning. Abiding is a, is a huge theme in this book, as it, as, it was in the, as it is in the Gospel of John. You can't keep on abiding in Christ and then keep on abiding in sin. There, there's transformation that's, being t- that's taking place if we're abiding in Christ. Jesus is producing fruit through us, and so while we still stumble, while we sin and mess up, whether it's because we've just turned our back for a day and not abiding in Christ, or just because of the sinful nature that's still warring within us, Sometimes we, we stumble. But if we're, if we're abiding in Christ, we cannot continue in habitual sin. You can't have both. It has to be one or the other. What he's saying here is, don't you see? You're a child of God. You're abiding in Christ, the one who came to take away sin. So why keep on sinning? You aren't going to continue in habitual sin because of the new nature that you have in Christ. But when we do sin, we confess it. We allow God to wash us clean, His forgiveness to cleanse us, and we move on. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. What I hope you see from verse 7 is that righteous living is not a matter of determination or diligence alone. You cannot will yourself to be righteous enough. It is a matter of dependence it's a matter of dependence on Christ. Maybe you've water skied before. You know this concept well if you've water skied. You have to have the strength, you have to have the skill to stay up on the skis, to stay in your skis, and to hold on to the handle. But ultimately, it's the boat that's powering. It's the boat that's propelling you forward. And so your diligence to stay on your skis and hold on, but you're utterly dependent on the power of the boat. That's what our walk is like with Jesus Christ. That's what abiding is like. We're diligent to stay connected to abide in Christ, but it is, it is Christ's power as we abide in Him that, that moves us and gives us any strength to live righteously and produce that spiritual fruit in our lives. As we abide in Christ, He bears that fruit, and we begin replacing the worldly fruit with fruit of the Spirit. For instance, let me just get a little bit personal here with you. What sin is vying for your attention right now? The answer is not to will it away or to focus so hard on getting rid of that sin. The answer to that is to abide in Christ and diligently seek the fruits of the Spirit. For instance, do you struggle with immorality? The answer is not to focus on getting rid of that. The answer is to abide in Christ and that through His power He will produce the fruit of self-control in your life and pretty soon that, over time, that immorality won't even become an issue because of the self-control that Jesus is producing through you. So many times, though, we think that it's our job as Christians to produce the fruit when in fact it's our job to abide in the vine, to abide in Christ. This must also mean that your righteousness and your ability to walk righteously are born out of your relationship with God. This is important. The relationship precedes the righteousness, as we see here in verses 8 through 10. I've lived parts of my life the other way around. 
somehow the righteousness achieves the relationship. That's not how it works. That's not biblical. That's not God's grace. First we have the relationship, and then the righteousness comes. John draws a stark line in the sand here. He says in verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Whoa, buddy. Calm down. (laughs) No, he's right. That's the origin of sin. And either you're associating with Jesus Christ or you're associating with the devil. There's no in-between. That's that stark line in the sand that John has has drawn there. Sin sin originated with the devil. Consequently, anyone who remains in sin is of the the devil. On the other side of that line, anyone who is born of God does not make a practice of sinning. Rather, he or she makes a practice of righteousness. And this inherently means that our relationship with God is what propels us to righteous living and not the other way around. Some of you might be caught in what I call a transactional relationship with God. It's, uh, you see your, your relationship with God as give and take. Uh, you feel that you have somehow have to impress Him or that you might even have to earn your own salvation, do good works to, to achieve that status with God. Maybe you pray prayers and when, when the things that you're asking for don't happen, you think, well, maybe there's something that I didn't do right. And, and so you think that somehow you're being punished. To be sure, there's consequence to sin, but many times, you know, we try to think of things that are, are completely unrelated. Or you, you wrestle with a sense of entitlement. You've been good. You've been doing your quiet time. You've been coming to church. You've been praying and nothing's going right for you. And you say, come on, God, step it up. I'm doing my part. That's a transactional relationship with God. And it's not biblical. That is not what Christ has saved you to. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It is God's grace that saves us. It is God's grace that is making us into his workmanship. And it is out of that status, it is out of that new nature of being his workmanship in Christ Jesus that we can now do the works that God has prepared for us, not the other way around. On the other hand, a transformational relationship as opposed to a transactional relationship with God is one where we do the right thing because God's seed abides in us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. If God's seed is in us, we have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God's seed could be his Holy Spirit. It could be the Word of God. It's probably both, because God uses both to plant himself in our hearts and change us and sanctify us and purify us as we hope in, in the second coming of Christ. And this brings us to the whole point of it all. You can know that you're a child of God because his righteousness is being displayed through you. John cues us into a primary way here at the end in verses 11 through 12 in which God's righteousness is displayed through us. Righteousness often shows itself in love. Clearly the example of Cain is the antithesis of love. He did not love because he was of the evil one. We, however, who are in Christ, are to love our brothers. And I wonder if Jesus' words were still ringing in John's ears, that we are to love one another. By this, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The ability to love others sacrificially as Christ loved us, which is the supreme act of righteous living, originates in the truth of John, 1 John 3, 1. 
And that's where I want to bring you back to you is this verse. From what country, from what planet, from what universe, from what world is the love that God is lavishing upon you that you should be called his son or daughter? He's showering it down upon you. And it is out of this love for you, his redeeming work on the cross and the hope in Christ's return that you are able to abide in Christ. Live as a child of the King and to walk righteously. Would you pray with me? Father, our, you, you've placed it in us, that desire to please you. And it's not a, a desire to impress you. So Lord, I, I, I pray, God, that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the sense and the discernment to walk righteously today and tomorrow and the next day. I pray for those in here who who maybe have never fully surrendered to Jesus. Pray, God, that you would break their hearts, that you would put it in their hearts, they would see the truth. I pray for all of us, Lord, as we wrestle continually with this process of abiding in Christ, of sin still vying for our attention. Lord, we rest in your grace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.